broadcasting from Chico, California. This is the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast, where we discuss NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries science and management, conservation, and more. Know better, fish better. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Hanna. I'm here with, of course, Chad Alderson. Chad, how we doing, man? Good, good. Just uh, we drove down to a special, special place. Kind of like... Where the, are we? We're in kind of the... Uh, what it, It's like the... Back uh, in the college days? Epicenter. <laughs> it's, a, it's the epicenter for all things fishery science in California, I would argue. Would you guys agree? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think so. I think most of the fish biologists <laughs> that we've had on the show has been in the this guest's class or has been touched by this guest's um all all the curriculum that you've probably crafted over the the, sure. the years i think that's a fair yeah. assessment well we've had obi went on you know we've had luke skywalker but we, we've never had yoda and now we, we have we, now have, we have yoda, yoda here <laughs> we have yoda. here i am okay <laughs> we, we have peter moyle peter moyle yep um go ahead introduce yourself peter well, uh, say I'm a professor emeritus, which means I'm officially retired from the university's perspective, but I still have an office and <clears throat> research program here at the Center for Watershed Sciences. Uh, I've been working on California fish since 1969 uh, when I was a faculty member at Fresno State for a while, and now I'm since 1972. I've been at, at the University of California, Davis, a really f- nice institution to be at for the kind of things I'm interested in. Well, so you've been here. You've been here 48 years on the 19th. Do you know why I know that? Because I was born in 72. Okay, that makes so sense. Yeah. 48 years. Did 48 I say 49? Yeah. 48. You said yeah, 48. 48. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. thank you for your time. I, obviously, you're a busy guy still, I'm sure. And, and thank you to John Sherman. He's also here with us to, that basically set this up for us. He's, he took you out fishing on the Delta recently, didn't he? Yeah, that was a great experience. I, I proved to him uh, definitely I never never fly fished in the Delta before and uh, need a lot of practice. How did you do, John? He did fine. He did fine. He did catch a few fish, and we had a, we had a great day on the water together. That was a cold day on the water. It was great. Those are the days I really like, cold and clear. It was beautiful. It was a chance uh, opportunity for me. The uh, Fly Fisherman Magazine reached out, and they had just named Dr. Peter Moyle the conservationist of the year, and they needed some photography of Peter, and so that's what set up the day. So it was just kind of uh, – I've had Peter's books, and it was just a unique dream opportunity to spend a day on the water with them. So it was, it was a great, great time. That's awesome. Uh, you know, I was – driving up here and I've been doing some research to figure out, you know, what exactly we were going to talk about. And when I start researching, it's just, it's endless. I mean, there are so (laughs) many different projects you've had your hands on and and been a part of. And it's, it's been really hard for me to try to pin, you know, narrow those down into something I wanted to talk to you about today or that we wanted to talk about. So I was hoping just to get a brief history of, you know, how, how you got started and the projects you've worked up through and that you're at today and kind of how and hopefully we don't botch the interview too bad to where we get invited back to have, to get, open your brain up some more in well, future episodes. Since I've been here 50 years, uh, you know, or 48, as you say, I, I like to round it off to 50. Um, I do too. Yeah. When anybody, yeah, I'm 50. Just yeah. that gets the acceptance. You know, you got to accept it. 
But I've been here a long time, and that, you know, longevity counts for something in these kind of things. Because one of the things I've managed to do over the years is conduct long-term research. Um, I've had programs going since sampling fish on a regular basis in creeks in the Sierras, for example, since 1980. And that's the same time I started uh, my Susu Marsh uh, research program, which is a monthly sampling of fish in Susu Marsh. I've been doing that really since 1980 as well. So my, my being in one place for a long time means I can do long-term studies. Hmm. And that's always fit my personality and and fit the way I like to <clears throat> be sure students have lots of opportunities for field experience. Because if you have programs going that are you're going out in the field yourself all the time, it provides opportunities to take students along. Mm-hmm. And that's always been great. Is that unique to, to California? Though that That's a long period of time. Like the Sassoon you're talking about, 35 years of doing studies. Is that a long period of time for a small, just that body, that body of water? Because you, you, we talked to a lot of other biologists and some of these research and projects that have didn't even start until, you know, well after that. And they've been very short. Yeah. How did you keep it funded for that long? That's my well, first I, question. Yeah. The funding was actually sort of a, a stroke of luck in a way. I was, I got interested in going out there because it had native fish and I had a graduate student who was looking for a, a species called tule perch, which is unique to California. And we've, I, we went out there sampling and I fell in love with the marsh as being just a gorgeous place with lots of different kinds of fish in it. And, uh, <clears throat> one of the, there's a, biologist for the Department of Water Resources named Randy Brown, just an amazing guy, who decided that he needed, that that the Department of Water Resources really needed good data on what the fish were doing in Susun Marsh. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the reason for that was that they, they were inst- about to install some huge tidal gates uh, where the Sacramento River drains into Montezuma Slough, which is the main artery going through the marsh. Um, and they wanted to find out if they open and close those tidal gates to keep, because the whole idea was to keep the marsh as fresh as possible for duck hunting, of all things. Um, that resulted in the need also to figure out what's going on with the fish. And I was already trying doing some sampling out there. I told them, essentially, if you provide me enough money to keep my boat going and hire a graduate student, hmm. I'll keep doing this for as long as you want. And hmm. so that started in, let's say, uh, a long time ago, and it's still going. Nineteen, I always have a hard time remembering exactly when, but yeah, nineteen eighty to the present for the for the formal sampling. How much has, has that body of water changed over those thirty five years? I mean, in your eyes, like a quick like summary of like from the like kind of the beginning what you saw. I mean, has it changed a whole lot or very little? Well, the the marsh itself looks the, the same because it's mostly duck clubs. That's why it's been protected actually because mm-hmm. duck hunters wanted to keep have a nice tidal marsh to to hunt over. <clears throat> and the um, what the and the fish have been changing, uh, but, but the important thing is it's remained a really good nursery area for all the fish of the San Francisco estuary: striped bass, American shad, uh, various native fishes, salmon. Uh, it's a very important nursery area, uh, and that's one thing that we've demonstrated in spades. That's, <clears throat> that's and and that and because we have such a long term study. Uh, you could, you really know what the ups and downs are of these various fishes that are out there. And probably the most important thing that came out of this from uh, the perspective of water managers and maybe the Department of Water Resources was that we noticed that, that in the, by the late 1980s, uh, Delta smelt, which is a fish found only in the Delta, had disappeared from our samples. 
Uh, and so I began to wonder, well, is this something just happening in the marsh or is it delta-wide? And it turned out it was uh, the delta smelt population had crashed everywhere. And that, of course, led to it being listed eventually as an endangered species. Uh, and uh, uh, which, which uh, you know, when you have a, an endangered species that whose main home is in the middle of the the beating heart of California's water supply, you know, it's a politically uh, hot species. I like how you put that beating heart of water supply because when you go out to the Delta and in John John's backyard, you really feel that way when you're mm-hmm. looking around and seeing all these different waterways coming into one place. Yes, you know, and providing that. Um, just a f- fantastic ecosystem for not only the Delta, but all the other tributaries that, that flow into it. It's a, it's basically the hub of all the spokes that are coming in from middle of California all the way up to the northern. That's area. right. And, and it's getting, you know, it's, it's been changed. For example, um, the south, the central and south Delta have become, over the past 20 years, increasingly uh, <clears throat> habitat that favors largemouth bass, for example, because of the invasion of Brazilian waterweed, which has slowed down the water, created lots of habitat for juvenile bass and for sunfish and for the crayfish that the bass feed on. And so the Delta over that period, in a relatively short period of time has become one of the premier uh, largemouth bass fishing sites in the country. Uh, that, that's something that's really astonished me how fast that, that developed. Um, and yet the rest of the delta, the part that's over on the Sacramento side of the estuary, actually, of the del- and the delta, is more like it used to be. It's cold water. Uh, it's great for striped bass. It's great for salmon. <clears throat> it's great for a whole slew of native species. But in both cases, we have ecosystems that bear very little resemblance to what they were 100 years ago or so. Um, they're, they're what I like to call a novel ecosystem. They're made up of a totally altered environment. You know, dikes and levees everywhere. Uh, the fish is split between native and non-native species. The fisheries being for both native and non-native species. Um, it's a system that exists nowhere else on earth because it's made up of players from all over the world who are seem to get along. That's the most amazing thing. One of the big ones you're talking about is striper being introduced back in the late 1800s into our West Coast, right? That's right. And that's, that's one of the species I have a renewed interest in right now. Why is that? Well, it, it it's it's gotten a bad rap. Uh, the it, you know one of the things that goes on in a place like this, where water is always in short supply, and where the delta is the center of water of our major water distribution system, um, it shouldn't be surprising that as you divert water and change the way the ecosystem works, that a lot of fishes that are out there don't like it. They either have to go someplace else or they go extinct. <clears throat> the Delta smelt, obviously, is one that's uh, on the verge of extinction. Um, and w- so what's going on is that these um, the, the, the Delta has to be <clears> – <throat> what am I trying to say? The, the Delta has uh, become the system that is so different from what it was historically that you have to keep studying it. Uh, and to try to figure out what fish is doing what and, and which, and, and you have to make decisions about what fish do we want to have around, uh, in the future. And the striped bass is one of those species that uh, is, it might as well be, an, you call it a native species because of the way it behaves. It's been around here for over a hundred years. Uh, it's thoroughly adapted to the system. It's one of the species that, one of the few species that entire life cycle is in the estuary. Uh, that means if you want a fish to monitor, in terms of telling you what's the health of the system 
<clears throat> based on what the fish are doing, the striped bass is a great fish to monitor. And ironically, that was um, the reason some of these key surveys that monitor fish in the system were set up back in the 19, well, as late as, late as early, late, as early as the 1950s, but mainly in the 60s and 70s, we had sampling programs set up in, in the Delta and in the estuary that were focused on striped bass because at that time, the agencies had two two major fish they were working with. They wanted to conserve to supply for to keep fisheries going. That was salmon and striped bass. Uh, well, uh, the salmon then you know they've been in decline. That's a whole other story. But the striped bass have always have been in this long term decline uh, ever since the, the 1930s, probably, um, and yet they they've they've. And but their numbers fluctuate according to the conditions of the estuary, and they're still one of the most abundant fish out there. So if you track striped bass, you're tracking what's going on in the estuary, and that's what the, when they were first set up, as a, when this was first set up in the 1960s and 70s, that's exactly the way the Department of Fishing Game was thinking. That, you know, what's the best fish to monitor the condition of the estuary? They said striped bass. Well, then in m- more recent times, it, it became a villain. Uh, by some standards because it was accused that the collapse of Delta smelt and other native fish was blamed on the striped bass predation uh, with no evidence for that. It just, except occasionally you'll catch a striped bass that lo and behold has a Delta smelt in the stomach or a salmon or another striped bass. Where, If there was no scientific evidence to back that up, where was that message coming from? Well, the, me- the message was primarily coming from the water users. Um, Define that for us. Well, the people people who divert the water for use and to irrigate the crops, especially in the so San Joaquin Valley, San Valley agribusiness. Valley. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the, the the big farmers essentially, and, and 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 really anybody who wants to take move move water south of the delta, uh, they they tend to have they tend to be alliances of farmers and 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 urban urban people and so forth, and you know you you. You always want to find reasons fish populations are collapsing that are not connected to diversion of water, if you possibly can. And, a, and, would that be considered a straw man then, as a striper? Uh, as a uh, yes, not a straw man, but a uh, uh, a straw fish, maybe straw fish. <laughs> but but you know, it's one of these things where if you, it seems obvious that it must be doing something, right? Here's this. Predator, big predator, uh, fish, the biggest predator in the system. Uh, it's non-native, uh, and uh, we know it eats fish of all sorts. Its favorite food now actually is threadfin shad, which is another non-native species. So it's easy to point a finger at that kind of fish, uh, at the striped bass, and sure. say, this is the villain because it's clearly it's, – there's a lot of big stripers out there. They're cleaning, they're, they're, they must be feeding on, the, on these other fish and causing their decline. And what you find, Delta Smelt is a classic example of this. Even back when striped bass, even when striped bass were abundant and Delta Smelt were abundant at the same time, it was very unusual to find a striped bass stomach that had a Delta Smelt in it. Even back then, they were feeding primarily on on, on anchovies, on, on their own young, on juvenile striped bass, uh, and on herring species of various sorts like threadfin shad. So from, from the very beginning the, the, of studies in the estuary, there's been very little evidence that they've uh, had any negative impact 
on <clears throat> on fish populations, except locally, of course. Anytime you you have a place where fish concentrate, that's where the fish that's where the bass will be. Is there anything being done to to bring those delta smelt back numbers back to where they were? What's well, the delta smelt is a, is a mystery because it's very hard to to, right. to bring back now. It's, the numbers are so low in the system; it probably cannot be brought back. Uh, that's my my current way of thinking. It needs a functioning estuary to get bring, you're going to really bring the delta smelt back. You got to have an estuary that really functions well. That is has good tidal circulation, has the, the tides that come in from Golden Gate and then come <clears throat> and fresh water that comes in from the Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers where the two mix and create a highly productive environment. Uh, that environment is largely gone now for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and, uh, so it makes it, that's what makes it so hard for Delta smelt to recover. And, and what I, I like to say is that if you recover striped bass, the Delta smelt might have some chance of recovery as well. Because hmm. they require the same hmm. things that the juvenile delta smelt require the same basic things that um, that, that uh, striped bass require, which is an open water environment that has lots of invertebrates in it, lots of food, uh, and and is fairly turbid, fairly not water's not very clear, uh, so you can avoid other predators yourself. Did you have a question, John? It looked like you were going to you were going to say something. <laughs> chime in, chime have, in whenever you want. Yeah, I have I have a few. Um, well, first of all, Peter, when we're on the we're on the water together, you were wearing a UC Davis striped bass project hat. What is? Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> what what uh, what is that all about? Well, that's really part of what I was talking about. This is uh, <clears throat> also funded by the Department of Water Resources uh, because they're they're very they they're you know they they I think uh, I, that that. Their, their interest in conserving fish and making the estuary work are really similar to mine because, you know, if they want to keep managing, exporting water and managing water, they've got to find ways to manage the fish, to keep these fish populations going. Otherwise, they'll, you know, you get involved in lawsuits and restrictive uh, regulations and so forth. So the more you can, <clears throat> they, the, the, the Department of Water Resources has a history of having some very good biologists associated with it who have generally had the ear of the managers. And, and these biologists are telling them, you, you got to know as much as possible about these, about the fish out there if you really want to manage them properly. Well, the focus though has been on the endangered species. And, and I've, and since, and the, I, while I was doing a lot of work on Delta smelt in the past, I thought this is an opportunity to turn this around completely and start working with the fish that everybody loves to hate out there, which is the striped bass, thinking that, that it is in fact one of the best species based on our Seuss and Marsh data. It is one of the best species to monitor for giving you some idea of how healthy the food webs are, how the, how healthy the water is and so forth for, for fish. And our striped bass project is um, an attempt to, through research, get to the heart of what's causing the long-term decline of striped bass. Uh, and what, what can we do to restore them? Uh, part of the project is to, is to do what hasn't been done in a long time, is to find out what's going on the East Coast for striped bass are native and compare that to what's going on out in California. In, in the same time frame? In the same time frame. Uh, hmm. To see if there's some insights you can get from that. Uh, part of a project, we will wind up with a, a symposium of some sort, bringing the East Coast and West Coast biologists together. Well, what are some hypotheses in terms of the connections between, you know, wh- what are you guys thinking is going to happen? Or 
the the insights to be gleaned, I guess, from a study like this. Well, one one of the more interesting ones which we're working on um, is this idea. You know, if you go to the East Coast, you find that the striped bass don't stay in the estuary. They love to go out um, out in the ocean, out in the Atlantic Ocean, and swim back up and down the coast, hundreds yeah. of miles, uh, forming these big schools of fish that are extraordinarily popular yeah we had fishermen. we had a guy uh, uh he free dives and he free dives mostly sacramento river oh yeah um and he he went through one of these big these big uh like he said it was a mile and a half of striper on the on in the atlantic when mm-hmm. where i think the same system you're talking sure. about and he said it was insane just yeah. just hundreds of thousands of, of striper coming through and he just kind of like dead drifted with them and watched them go through and just this big river of striper well striped bass on the east coast are perhaps the number one sport fish uh, in the ocean right you know followed by bluefish and a <clears throat> few other and, and the various shad species but you know stripers are rockfish uh, back hmm. there uh, and so the big one of the questions is what why don't stripers in the San Francisco estuary, why don't they do the same thing? Why don't they go out to sea, go back and forth, take advantage of that uh, highly productive waters out there, and then come back at a, an even bigger size? Uh, and that's sort of an unknown. We we do know they do go out to sea because party boats catch them all the time. Uh, and then they've uh, for a while they had, there was a population established in Coos Bay, Oregon. Uh, that was self-sustaining, but that pretty much died out. And now there's one in the, apparently in the Umpqua River, in the, in the estuary there, of striped bass. But they, striped bass, in other words, here don't seem to need the ocean as much as the striped bass on the East Coast do. Is this they, like food availability in the Delta, essentially? Well, I think that, that that's what's so interesting, that things are changing. Uh, and we may be seeing more <clears throat> bass leaving the system than, than happened in the past. Uh, but we, uh, I've always figured it's little, just the ocean is a little bit too cold compared to the Atlantic. You know, the, these bass are in this nice sort of warm estuary. Um, they, the, the big females, especially, which the ones are most likely to go out to sea here, stick their noses in the ocean and say, uh, this is <laughs> no thanks. too cold. It's I, like me. Yeah, no thanks. Then they wait for a warm year, and suddenly, hell, this is great. And that's, those are the years when you start seeing party boats, even in Southern California, catching striped bass. Um, and then further north, they start appearing as well. But uh, uh, finding – and, and may, who knows, with climate change, you may find the striped bass taking more advantage of the ocean than they, than they can now. But it's, it appears to be just a little bit too cold for them most of the time. Hmm. I thought that was interesting when you said that I, I was reading that, that you're bringing in these professionals from the East Coast to study the stripers over here. I thought that was really and what they thought, you know, and yeah. you're kind of summing it up a little bit that it's just another world that they're in and, and how they react is completely different than what's going on over there. Oh, yeah. There. The vast behavior is quite different, and we'd like to know why and, and if those differences are what they really mean for the fishery here. It's interesting. Like Jacob Katz paints a, a wonderful picture of, sure. of the, um, our valley in California and where it was back in the late 1800s, you know, and how we started channelizing all our rivers and, mm-hmm. you know, striped bass introduced at that time that we're channelizing our rivers, you know, this, all these species are mingling together, trying to figure out, you know, who they are, you know, now, and then people are more and more people are coming. Dams are being built on these rivers, you know, in the middle of it. And then, more and more people continue to show up, more water is being pulled. So 
it's it seems like it's it's always changing you know there's all the environment's completely changing all the time and trying to wrap your head around why these species are declining or why these species are doing well is this like a never ending, almost a never ending battle that you, I feel like. Well, one of the interesting things though is to consider species like striped bass as native. And what has not been done is to look at the genetics to see how much these, the striped bass here have changed uh, in contrast Mm. to the East coast fish. There have been some Mm. studies done of American shad, which are introduced at about the same time as striped bass, and that the, the American shad are um, genetically quite different from the American shad populations on the East Coast from which they're derived. So that suggests that these fish that have been established for a long time here have evolved and adapted, essentially, to the estuary as it is here. And that quick. And, and very quickly, yeah. That's and, crazy how and, fast. 100-plus years, yeah, huh. that's right. Uh well, it makes sense. It's, you think of if you're a, a species like the bass or the shad, where each female lays thousands of eggs, uh, even millions of eggs in the case of these really big female striped bass. Um, how natural selection can select for the yeah. for the for the fish that survive. Yeah, and your your likelihood of having a mutation goes up with yeah. every every egg, right? That's right. Essentially, yeah. Every time you you get a fish out there that survives, it may have some special capacity. Hmm. that is absent from the ones that didn't survive. And that, that, that results in this very strong selection pressure to produce fish that do well in the system. Uh, the problem is it's changing uh-huh. so fast today, you wonder if the fish can even keep up with it, not just the, the species like the striped bass, but the native species as well. I, well I'd say it on a, I've said it a lot on this <laughs> show before is that now more than ever, we have a lot of people coming together to try to do a better job with our yeah. fisheries, you know, whether it be the farmers or the, you know, the biologists, the landowners. I mean, it seems like everybody's trying to, trying to do something to, to make it better. It, is there light at the end of the tunnel or is it, you know, we've heard well, numbers one of paper, like, it's like five, to be in a hundred years, all our salmonoids yeah. are going to be gone from our, from yeah. our valley rivers. Well, the, uh, everything depends on how we manage the water and how much water we <clears throat> we actually want to allocate for fish. Um, we, you know, we're very good about taking as much water as we need for whatever purpose farms, the, the Silicon Valley, the, um, uh, the the cities of 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 Central and Southern California. We've you know they all need. We got enormous numbers of people in California. It's ever growing population. That there's ever increasing water demand. Uh, and so we have to make up our minds whether we really want to share this water with the fish or not. Uh, I personally think we ought to, but yeah. during a drought, it's not always a popular opinion. I mean, it's, you know, when times are good and there's lots of water around, everybody says, sure, let's release extra water for the salmon, for the striped bass, for whatever. And then you have a big drought, though, that's when the get down to crunch time, and that's when the decisions are really hard to make about how much water you leave what, in, in the system for fish. What are your, what, where do you uh, land with for or against sites reservoir with that in mind? Well, I've, I, I have a hard time figuring sites reservoir out. I, don't, I generally don't think reservoirs are the way to go in terms of solving problems because, you know, it, it's, it's one more way of, sto- you know, the, the cell sites as being a reservoir which will store water um, during high water years, mm. <clears throat> so they'll have more flexibility for managing the system for fish, of course. It's always for fish. Uh, mm. More flexibility in managing the system, uh, and that will to, and that will improve. You can use it to improve fish populations. Um, 
I'm a bit skeptical of that because uh, it's the same thing of like, raising Shasta Dam. That was that's been the same uh, argument there. We got to raise Shasta Dam to increase the cold water pool to provide more water for salmon. Uh, I, I, and the reality is, it's it's to make sure that at, at the very least the water supplies for people are are stay the stay the same, if not mm. go up. So, so the yeah, fish, I mean, fish are always a secondary. Yeah, I mean, ra- raising a Shasta Dam compared to sites is different, though. I mean, you've got the McLeod and yeah. the Upper Sac that it would be impacted sure. by rays from Shasta, right? But, but sites the- seems, you know, it's 500,000 acre feet, I guess, mm-hmm. of, uh, of additional capacity. If they do say they're going to only pull it off, pull water off during high water season, then that's, that's, I don't see an issue with that big, that much, but there was, forget who we talked to nick um but we did talk about one aspect of the water like warming and but mm-hmm. then really you know they they right. do intend to release some of that water back into the into the right. main stem at some point so that could be an issue you know because the water temperatures in that one zone could could go up so if you have any up up m- moving any you know salmon salmon is m- moving up in the system they hit the warm water they're like What's going on? Yeah, Sykes is going to be a very warm reservoir. Yeah, <clears throat> of course, maybe not, the, maybe, not that deep. Maybe in the winter it'll cool down enough to make a difference. But, yeah, um, it's going to be a, and it's going to lose the water. <clears throat> excuse me, it's going to lose a lot of water through evaporation. Uh, you yeah. just look at the size of that reservoir yeah. in a very hot place, yeah. fairly shallow. Um, so spending billions of dollars on new infrastructure uh, of this sort. It's certainly not. If I had a choice, it's not the way I would go. I would yeah. figure out ways. Of it's what is your California's choice? Tough. What, what is your choice? What do you think? In because you mentioned reservoirs not being the answer. What What do you think is the answer? Well, partly is it's improving flows and habitat below the dams. Uh, that, that that's where the remaining habitat is taking places like Deer Creek and Mill Creek and uh, uh, Battle Creek on the in, up in the Sacramento system, making those into. Uh, doing everything you can to make those systems uh, uh, refuges for salmon and native fish. Um, you know, you have to face up to the fact that we're never going to have the numbers of salmon that we had originally because most of their habitat is above these dams. Mm-hmm. So you have to make use of uh, the habitat that you have, and that's to say mostly below the dams and in the Sacramento River and, and, and so forth. Um, and that's and but you see the problems you run into when you look at what's going on in the San Joaquin right now, where you're spending large large sums of money to restore um, a Spring Run Chinook, which is the historic salmon that that were there. I think that's I really like that idea. I like doing it, but the end result is going to be it's not going to be a very big population of fish. Of course, it's a little side sidetrack, but I see is one of the real important things about that particular salmon restoration project is that it restores a living river, makes the San Joaquin flow again. Uh, and that'll be good for lots of other fish besides salmon. Is that just because of the spawning habitat's not as large as it used to be, or the carrying capacity is going to be different? Or? Yeah, the, the, the spawning habitat, spawning and holding habitat for spring run Chinook um, in the San Joaquin system is mostly now under Millerton Reservoir. Hmm. And you have this reach that's right from the reservoir down, well, it depends on where you want to draw the line, but 10, 20 miles, uh, where you have big, deep pools the adults can hold in, and they're cold enough Uh during the cold, 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 cold temperatures during the summer, and then you have some fairly decent gravel they can spawn in. But in the meantime, you have 150 miles of river between there and the mouth of the Merced River, which is where the restoration project officially ends. That is going to be habitat for other fish, 
and it'll also be good for recreational. I probably grow riparian trees, which are good for migratory birds. Uh, so there's all kinds of benefits that come from restoring a river, even though your goal is salmon. For me, the, the, the biggest thing that'll happen there, it'll be so great, will be you'll restore a living river and a river hmm. system. We've already kind of heard some of these um, yeah. responses, like steelhead showing up in some of these rivers that, have never, yeah. that haven't been there in, in years, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, rainbow trout slash steelhead are some of the most <coughs> resilient of all the salmonids. They're just amazing in what they do and how rapidly they come back to a system. And it's why some of the best <clears throat> steelhead populations are actually in living in reservoirs right now. They're the they're the fish that in Berryessa and a few other places are these bigger bigger biggest trout you catch when you're up there are these these, these wild type trout, and they're going up. The, the, the creeks flowing into Berryessa Reservoir spawning uh, and behaving just like steelhead, only with the reservoir as the ocean. What was the word you used when, on the walk over here? Oh, ad fluvial. Ad fluvial. Not ad a new word. Fish. Not anadromous. A new ad, word. Ad fluvial. Basically, it just means anadromous, but for freshwater right. kind of patterns, right? That's right. It means upriver. Fluvial is river. Ad so, fluvial. Yeah. Okay. You could really impress people if you use that. <laughs> oh, I'm going to impress the shit out of the next biologist I have on. Do you think sam- – we've talked about the adaptations of the striper and the shad. Do you think salmon will ever adapt to the, to warmer water conditions that, that are coming – that are going to be facing us? I mean, I, I, we've kind of already seen a little bit of it, but I hear that a lot. The temperature's got to be this. The temperature's got to yeah. be this. And, and I know that we've seen a lot of ways Mother Nature finds a way, but – do you ever see that? Well, there are a couple of responses to that. One is that there's some evidence from research being done here at UC Davis that the Chinook salmon in the Central Valley are already slightly more tolerant of warmer water than are the salmon further north. So there's already some adaptation in that direction, which suggests that it may be possible. But we remember, most of the salmon we now have in the Central Valley are of hatchery origin. Mm-hmm. So. That, that that creates some issues there and may reduce the ability of these fish to adapt. Um, so uh, temperature is, especially with climate change, is always going to be an issue for these fish. And can the fish adapt? Uh, that's a good question. Probably not. If, if temperatures change as rapidly as some people think they will, then no. The only way you're going to keep these salmon going is by providing cold water releases mm-hmm. from the reservoirs. Peter, I'd like to ask a few questions about uh, that, that I learned um, reading your book, Inland Fishes of California, which if uh, for all those anglers out there, I uh, highly recommend. That's the Bible of fisheries in California. Um, and I grew up down in the Central Valley, down in Visalia, you know, 60 miles south of the San Joaquin, and I didn't even realize that there were salmon that once ro- uh, roamed up the San Joaquin. And then reading your book, it, it, that river was the epicenter of spring run Chinooks. It was the biggest returns of spring run Chinooks on the planet, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. That's right. Um, and, and it just seems, uh, like there's generations of people that down in that world that don't even acknowledge that salmon once existed there. And even though this was, you know, the Bristol Bay before Bristol Bay. So I guess my question to you is like, uh, what, what, where can we go with the San Joaquin? Is there any, any way to bring it back? Do the people in the valley, do the, will the farmers acknowledge that that is uh, of importance moving forward and, and what's the future of that system? Well, I don't see the, the, the San Joaquin as ever having really big runs again like they once had, perhaps half a million fish once came up the San Joaquin. <clears throat> and you realize that when they um, finally shut off the flows after Friant Dam was built, 
there's a run still around a 50,000 salmon um, coming up the river, and they just said, too bad. Uh, and those 50,000 fish <clears throat> were allowed to die. And not, and not essentially, and the few that spawned their progeny were not allowed to go out to the ocean. So that was a, you know, very open and shut case. So they just let, let them die. Um, but all their best habitat is under, under reservoirs. So you have to, means you have some reliance on hatcheries and you use whatever natural habitat you have left. So it's going to be a, <clears throat> a relatively small po- population. But the, it, but as I mentioned before, one of the important things is that it will restore a river, it will, which is good for lots of other animals besides salmon. You know, salmon are the, are the, are the, um, uh, symbol of, of what people would like to see. But, uh, if if you can use that symbol as a reason to restore the entire river and to keep it going for <clears throat> lots of other fish and fishing and boating and everything else, then that's that, that, that's keep holding them up. Uh, there's it's, just it's, it's worth it. There's just collateral benefits if you take care of the salmon. Essentially. Yeah, that's right. right. And even though you will never have a huge run going up the San Joaquin again, you will have so many other things that come from keeping the salmon going as much as you can Mm. that to me it's worth every cent invested in it well one of the other big takeaways i have from uh, from your book is when we think of california we think of chinook salmon we think of a few runs of coho salmon up and down the coast but we once had chum salmon sockeye salmon pink salmon all five species were running here in california right and i that was not something we thought we think about uh, I remember back in uh, my Chico State days, I did catch a humpy once on the feather, which was just wild, Whoa. so random, crazy, strange. So um, kind of share with us the kind of the history of California and Salmonids and what we used to have here in this in the state. Well, people are catching it. I saw a pink cot recently, I think, right, on on, yeah. a, on a river that just they shouldn't have even been there, but they, they showed up randomly. Or I, I'd make, go ahead and fill well, it. Well, I don't know how it, pink salmon are especially interesting because the two-year life cycle – uh, and they spawn really close to the estuaries and they're spawning during the winter months. So when the, they just aren't likely to be people out where they're spawning. So most, most of the agency folks tend to think that pink salmon no longer exists as a viable runs in California. Uh, I have my suspicions that uh, there are several places where they're <clears throat> maintaining runs, such as Redwood Creek up in the, in the north coast that where they, when they set screw traps, they regularly catch juveniles, pinks moving out. But then again, they're not, they probably were never a very abundant fish in California. Uh, and, but, is ever no every reason to think they did have populations at one time. Same thing with chum salmon. Um, coho salmon are much more of a tragedy in the sense that we probably post World War II had uh, upwards of four hundred thousand probably uh, 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 coho salmon coming back to our coastal streams. It's just hard to imagine that many these bright red fish being in our mm-hmm. streams today. Just a few places where they've you can you can see that. Uh, and yet, and, then, and their disappearance coincided very much with the with the mechanized logging that took place up and down the coast following, following the Second World War, and those populations plummeted. Uh, and this again, this, this is the story I like to tell because it shows you where an academic biologist can make some kind of a difference. Uh, is that I was looking at the I was doing some work in one of these, in the Navarro River and looking at the coho and reading how how. how rare coho were compared to what I'd read historically. Um, 
And uh, so I started asking biologists and others, well, what's, what's going on with the coho salmon? Why aren't they more abundant? Uh, you know, why aren't they abundant, essentially? And the recent response I typically got was that someone in their own watershed would say, well, they disappeared from our watershed, but I've heard they're doing fine in the next watershed over. And the Department of Fish and Game at that time was advertising coho as being coho are on the comeback trail. You know, the idea that they'll magically restore themselves. Uh, by practice, because a lot of the logging practices had changed and so forth. Um, so I actually went out, got some money from the, 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 the um, uh, the, the, what was the, then the, uh, no, I got some money from the feds anyway, the, the National Marine Fishery Service, um, to do an evaluation of coho populations in California. And we did a very quick and dirty, uh, um, evaluation and came up with the base numbers that, uh, conservatively, there were 30,000 coho left in California, of which only 5,000 were really of non-hatchery origin, were truly wild fish. That was back in the 1990s. Um, and so that, that, that study, I think, helped, helped break the deadlock of people sort of always knowing the fish were in serious trouble, but just not wanting to admit it. And that ultimately was one of the factors that resulted in their being listed as an endangered species in California. But you have, someone had to be get out there and actually do, do the data, look for the data, do the analysis, and publish something for you to be taken seriously. And I, I like to point out that's one reason to maintain academic biologists, because we can do those kind of things and not be too beholden to uh, the powers that and be. And coho are very unique in the fact they need a certain, a very specific habitat to, yes. to spawn in, right? I mean, that was the big thing. I mean, that, and that's what they're doing now is reintroducing all. We just had a podcast about this uh, okay. not recently. And so they're doing a lot of work to bring back that habitat, adding wood debris into yeah. the rivers and, and certain things like that. Which well, is, you know, it's not, not a coincidence that the historic distribution of coho salmon pretty much coincided with that of redwoods and duck fur. On the California coast, they like those big forests and the, and the way they keep the pond, keep the rivers cool, provide and, food. And the trees like the 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 fish when they decompose too. That, exactly right. That that yeah. is a reciprocal relationship yeah. there. The, the trees like the fish. The fish like the trees. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as you cut down the redwood forest, you're also eliminating habitat for for coho. Um, but you know, it's, it's a lot of effort. You look at at, at the efforts going on in Lagunitas Creek, for example, which is this stream in Marin County, there's a dedicated group of people that are trying to restore the coho salmon uh, to, the, to that stream. And that you know has a few hundred to a few thousand fish. Actually, I don't think there's been anything over a thousand recently. But at any rate, very small numbers of fish. Uh, it takes a lot of work to get, the, get that number back. And so you, you look at that effort that needs to be done on streams up and down the California coast it's no, no wonder the coho have become so uh, rare in, in California compared to what they used to be. Hmm. Peter, I just learned in reading the, the the current Fly Fisher magazine, the article about yourself in there, that you were instrumental in uh, catch and release regulations on the McLeod and how that kind of, you know, back in the 70s, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Um, and that was kind of like one of the you know, first catch and release regulations in the country. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And now that's, you know, as fly anglers, that's something that we just look at as a foundation of the fishing that we do. And you were instrumental in that. Well, you know, that's one of those nice coincidences that, that, that comes up. Um, I was a young assistant professor uh, looking for places 
to, to work there were, and preferably places nobody had done much work in. And McLeod River was always high on my list of rivers to visit and try to do some work in. At the same time, I got elected to the board of the Nature Conservancy in California. At that time, the Nature Conservancy was a very different organization. It was relatively small, uh, sort of a local Northern California group. And there were a, a bunch of staff members just hired who, shall we say, wanted to get rid of the old guard so they could be more progressive in their um, uh, act, uh, managing TNC lands and then, and then actually taking big chances with things. Um, so about that time, here I was on the board, I said, they said, we, we've been offered, uh, six miles of the McLeod River from the McLeod River Club, uh, to become a preserve because, um, uh, that was back in the days when, uh, if you owned a lot of old growth forest, you got taxed on the inventory. So mm. either you cut it or you, in this case, gave it away. Hmm. Uh, which is what happened. The Nature Conservancy acquired this six miles of a river, one of the most beautiful rivers in California with hmm. all these big trees on it. Um, and then, you know, they were sort of these young staff, uh, people like myself, also very young and naive, say, okay, we caught the car. <laughs> now, now, now what <laughs> do we do? do with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> So, fortunately, I think Trout Unlimited came up with some money to fund a couple of my graduate students, because the, the, one of the key uh, fish we were lo- wanted to know about was what's happened to Dolly Varden or bull trout. The bull trout, yeah. Yeah, in, in the um, McLeod. Hmm. Were they still there even? And we basically figured out, that, found that they really, they really weren't. One of, the, one of the graduate students caught the last one on record. Um, but we also wanted to see what kind of stream was it? What kind of trout stream was it? Where were these trout coming from? How were they maintaining their populations? Uh, and we, of course, found out what any fisherman who's been out there knows. It's a great trout stream. The trout aren't all that big, but they're feisty. They're beautiful. Uh, it's They're pretty slow growing because the water is it's just, cold. It's really cold. And that's why it does so well. Right? And that's cause yeah, that's why everything does so well there. Um so we came, we, we did the studies. We found that this was really a great place to, you know, to, for trout. And, and also we found just working there that there are a lot of the locals were coming and fishing, uh, you know, trespassing, of course, because it was before that, it was McLeod River Club land originally, and then it was TNC land. Uh, so we could see that fishing was going to happen no matter what. You know, the, the, the mindset of the Nature Conservancy at that time, which was changing, though, was that this is a preserve. You don't harvest fish from a preserve, uh, which is why catch and release angling seemed to be such a natural solution to the problem. Mm. Um, so we proposed catch and release angling as, as, a main, as a main management tool, pointed out that one thing, you, if you, res- you could restrict it, to, I think initially it was 15 anglers a day that were allowed in, um, you could restrict it, and those people then would also be patrolling this river for you to keep mm-hmm. out poachers and others, and tell you if something was something was wrong. Uh, and that that essentially worked worked really well, uh, and it has to this day. Uh, the next step, next thing after that was to convince the Department of Fish and Game to um, 
uh, allow catch, make it catch release fishing. Because you have to realize in that era, the reach of the McLeod River between McLeod Dam and the Adena, uh, and Adena Campground, which was the Forest Service Campground and the, and the Nature Conservancy Reserve, that, that stretch of river was being treated as a put and take fishery. The Department of Fishing every month during the summer would tr- take a truckload of trout from one of their hatcheries and dump it in the river. Uh, I was just astonished at that. I said, here's a. It's below down? This is below McLeod Dam, yeah. I said, is that like at Ash Camp they'd drop them in or yeah, something? At, at, okay. at, yeah, at the Adena Campground is where, oh, where, okay. where they would put them. And it just seemed sort of silly. Uh, here you had this really productive little trout stream with beautiful wild trout. Why would you want to put these hatchery fish in the system? And we were sampling that area for a while, and we found out these hatchery fish just weren't surviving anyway. Mm-hmm. You catch a bunch of them, you look at their guts, cigarette butts, <laughs> pine, pine needles, you know, anything but what you would expect to find in a wild trout. Um, so we eventually convinced the department to stop planting fish in there because that wasn't, wasn't necessary. Then they did make that area into a two-fish limit system for a long time. But then the McLeod River, the, the Danger Conservancy section, uh, got declared a um, catch and release fishing. But that required me going to Sacramento and arguing with the administration there that they should do this because they were not accustomed to doing, you know, making um, rivers catch and release only. It was regarded as sort of a, uh, I don't know, aristocratic uh or sort of a snooty way of doing business. Um, and the, the, the Nature Conservancy by this time, of course, was uh, fully on board. Uh, and the, the key, I think, here was Caltrout got involved, Dick May in particular, who, the, the founder of Caltrout, who joined me in, in asking for catch-release fishing. And pretty much, uh, pretty much did it. I think a lot more streams should be catching us. That was a good question. Yeah, dude. Thank way. you very much yeah. for asking that question. That's I've, fascinating. I, I, I've got I've got a question that relates back to the to that around the genetics and the the hatchery stuff. Ahead. But no, you go. Go. Ahead. go I'll, I'll go after you. No, I was just it's it's dumb, but I, I think that a lot of fisheries should be a, like not fly fishing only. But you you worry about a lot of these poachers right. and people coming mm-hmm. in and snagging and ruining an awesome fishery. And and it's not you know you don't see a fly fisherman with trebles and a weight trying to come yeah. down there and snag a <laughs> salmon. You know, so I've always been an advocate for maybe some more waters like that should be fly fishing sure. only. You know, or I don't know. That's a little bit aggressive, but well, we're just catch and release. If, yeah, if you're going to do that, you, you also have to have some kind of programs in place to get kids. Right, and yeah. get the next generation hooked on fly. That's right. a really important point. Yeah, you got to get kids successful, like Good. right out of the gate. We, we, everybody we have on that we ask, hey, how do I get my kid into fishing? They're like, you got to get them to catch fish like this as soon yeah. as you go out there. And if you're gonna spend two hours of casting instruction and talk about entomology, you're probably gonna lose them. Yep, that's right. You, right. That's why urban ponds with hatchery trout are a perfectly good thing to have if you want you want kids to get hooked on fishing. Yeah. Or, or even it doesn't matter what kind of fishing, just getting them into it. Uh, and then one more, the Deer Creek. Uh, you know, it has uh, it's an anadromous stream, but they're yeah. still planting you know trout in in that stream for yeah. for take, and and that just seems that doesn't seem right to me as well. I mean, just those fish mingling with all the the native species that could potentially be in there. I mean, I've I've kind of been saying lately, like, yeah, what if we were putting hatchery steelhead in there? We're already dumping hatchery steelhead in all these other places. Why not? supply hatchery steelhead in those same places that they're putting trout 
you know, for a potential of an anadromous fish coming back. You know? And that kind of dovetails into my next question, so that's perfect. Yeah, well, you know, those streams should have be, be native fish streams regardless. Yeah. <clears throat> native steelhead, native, native, right. native spink, right. native, native chinook. The, 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 one of the problems, of course, is that there are so many hatchery fish out there that they stray into that river, into those streams regardless. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to find better ways to um, uh, – Select for the fish you want in there. I keep thinking that I, my dream is that all of these streams is they have, actually have weirs at the bottom where you have somebody manning the weirs who. <laughs> like know, a bouncer? Yeah, like a bouncer. So you're good. You go upstream. You're no good. <laughs> you do genetic tests or something. That's probably a, a, a real pipe dream. But they've really maintained some of these wild populations, especially those in places like Deer and Bill Creek, which are so small. I've read. I've read. You need to do something like that. I've read that the the indigenous peoples in in our area they would they would basically cull fish and select let let some pass through that they wanted to breed upstream. And then they would harvest others, but they would they would net them all, and then just like pick them up, look at them, and decide which ones. Is that accurate or no? You know, I've never heard that particular aspect of the story, but we definitely know that most of the tribes uh, or the bands of Indians that lived on the lower reaches of streams, like the like the like the Deer Mill Creek or like the Klamath River, um, let fish through their weirs because they mm-hmm. could they had the capacity to probably trap them at least in 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 low flow years to trap most of the fish coming up mm-hmm. but they also recognize that that that, you know, that the people upstream needed the fish too yeah i know where to find those pure genetics too for those those potential steelhead the at fluvial trout that are working their way back and forth in the lakes right i mean oh yeah when you look at the genetics of those yeah. fish and you see some of them they like you said they're steelhead you know yeah. like they're making their way back and forth i mean yeah that, that's the genetics is there let's yeah, take that, it and, okay and and, spread, and, and spread that's exactly up. what i want to talk about was genetics um define for us a while in, in the context of a valley <laughs> valley rivers <laughs> built you know behind dams or I'm sorry, yeah, behind dams, define for us what wild means. Well, wild to me means, if, uh, you know. Well, and we're talking just the valley because yeah. it's a weird, it's a yeah, loaded yeah. question, right? Yeah, because you can you can have a fish of hatchery origin that's completely wild. Yeah. Because it's been, been, Exp- <clears throat> been yeah. raised in a, an environment for since it was, it was small. My own bias is towards. <clears throat> wild fish being those that not only, that are, come from natural reproduction of parents that were wild as well, maybe at least one or two generations back. So, and that means that they have a high genetic diversity. Uh, and it, if you, especially if you're interested in steelhead, you know we, we've now identified this complex of genes. This is done by people here at UC Davis as well. You identify this complex of genes uh, that. That are to tell you whether a fish is an adamus or not, whether it's a steelhead or just a resident fish. Hmm. You can select, you can make sure that the population contains those genes. Because, you know, in the populations like Southern California steelhead, for example, which are a mixture, you look at the, 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 the trout that are in upstream of these, uh, streams, Southern steel, Southern California steelhead come up and do those trout clearly support steelhead populations because they're a mixture of fish mm-hmm. that have the anadromous gene and those that don't. Uh, and selection is always going to operate on whichever one produces the most young in the long run, whichever, whatever genotype is going to produce the most young is the one that's going to succeed in the long run. So you, <clears throat> but California is such a variable environment that under natural conditions, 
the, the one life's history pattern won't dominate over another. Other, oh, they'll go side by side because some years want the trout, the non-resident, well, the trout will be favored, <clears throat> and in in uh, uh, other years, the steelhead might be favored. So yes, uh, it's a complex issue. Then the the genetics of the salmon, salmon and trout is an incredibly uh, complex and interesting thing, and we're just now learning <clears throat> that things you can do to sort of manipulate that. Uh, Are you talking about genetic engineering specifically or just well, more more of just a eugenics type of a, well, an approach? Genetics engineering is what we do right now with our with our with our trout hatcheries. You know, we're selecting for fish that survive best in trout hatcheries. That, I would argue and that's more hatcheries. eugenics though, but I'm yeah. I'm talking about, you know, using CRISPR and putting together a super resilient fish and I'm sure people are talking about that, but I've not heard about this specifically with uh, wild for wild yeah. uh, trout. Uh, I know they're doing this with domestic rainbows. They're trying all kinds of genetic combinations to build super fish, especially fish that can that could grow either under <clears throat> warmer or colder temperatures. Right. You know that can survive under whatever hatchery conditions. They, yeah, because that's going to be in our tool set here soon. I mean, it's in the lab now, but it could. Sure. It, it's going to be something we could do at scale. You know. Well, the question is whether you Maybe. can make that really work to restore wild populations. Yeah. Uh, it's much better the off. The Jurassic fish, right? Jurassic fish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're doing that in Eagle Lake right now, I believe, because the, they've, um, so many of the same genetics have been inter- spawning with each yeah. other. They're trying to find the, that diversity, yeah. right? They're working on, is that what you're referring to? And yeah, yeah, the Eagle Lake trout is an example of a, of a species that was down to, a few hundred fish at one time. It depends on, on, on what you what you read between the lines there, but mm-hmm. a very small number of fish that were main that and that they were large. These the eagle egg trout was largely rescued by capturing these last few fish, or what's assumed to be the last few fish, uh, and then raising them in a hatchery, and then <clears throat> um, putting them back in the lake when they reached a certain size, so then you could harvest them again. So you have the uh, ideally, you get the early life history in the hatchery, but the later life history is in the lake, and that's so they maintain a more natural uh, uh, life history and phenotype. The problem is they become genetically <clears throat> very limited. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. how do you uh, what what do you do about that? How do you bring these bring increased genetic diversity in a way that makes sure that the eagle lake trout can actually live and spawn in the Pine Creek, which is a main tributary to Eagle Lake. They can actually u- to utilize that, the, the original habitat. And, of course, there's a situation where nothing is easy because you have to get rid of the brook trout first. What do you, where do you, <laughs> what are your thoughts on the argument where um, you've got a water system that's been, you know, over-engineered by man? Uh, it's pushed the resident population out another species has come in i mean a brown trout for example um better adapted for those mm-hmm. those conditions um i've the, the restoration projects that i scratch my head about are the ones where you've got a system that's been you know completely altered right. but there's a non-native species in there like a brown trout and there's a big you know project to do a big fish kill and try and reintroduce a species that has already been pushed out once because of what we've done, and now they're going to try it again. Where do you where do you fall on Are that? You're talking about Truckee River and the pyramid. Yeah, the I mean that's an example. Um, yeah, but well, it, yeah, it, it, this idea of <clears throat> not the Truckee specifically, but up in that area. Yeah, the, the idea of poisoning out a stream and restoring 
<clears throat> the native trout yeah. uh, will work, uh, but it has to be on a small stream. You're you're not going to make it work on the Truckee River itself, but you know the the Paiute cut through a trout restoration, which is in a handful of small streams up in the uh, uh, Carson Wilderness area. That is um, that's been very successful, and that, that and that works not only because the it gets rid of the non-native trout in there, but it also they can do that without necessarily harming the system in other ways. So you're, you're getting back to the, the natural system. Uh, and and streams are small enough so you can actually do those kind of operations. What okay? So what's why do you need a small stream for to you know to have that that you know to be a successful kind of endeavor? Well, what's it's just the, what's just the point of it. If you're using these poisons, wrote known as oh they use. okay, so it's like a parts per million thing yeah, to see effectiveness of the fish kill. Yeah, the bigger okay. the bigger the river, the harder it is to make that work. I okay. I was involved in observing. Several big operations like this on the Feather River uh, in my early days as a faculty member here, uh, and um, I was impressed with the fact that uh, they were poisoning out river sections of the river that they'd poisoned out ten years earlier to get rid of. In this case, they wanted to get rid of the native fish to favor rainbow trout, planted rainbow trout. Good. <laughs> uh, you know, management philosophies change through the years. You know, yeah. things that seem ridiculous to us now were the state of the art at the time. Yeah, uh, and that's that's when I, when I first began to realize that the native fishes were really well adapted for this exact exactly this kind of thing. You because they they were brought up in California where you had the mega, mega droughts occurred long before any people got here, and these fish had to survive those mega droughts. So it means. That they could drop down to very small populations. As soon as the rains come again, they would boom and come back in in large numbers. So that's what all the native fish are very good at doing. When when we were walking back, uh, when we were walking over here in the parking lot, we were talking about the St. Helens eruption and then Mm -hmm. that whole watershed being blown out. And then it made me think about what happened on the Upper Sac when that pesticide spill. Oh yeah. Are there any correlations there in, in terms of how those, those systems rebounded and, and if there are, what, what do you feel those are? Well, again, in, in the, um, in, in, in the Sacramento river, that, that reach that was, that was hit by the, uh, train wreck and that, uh, it was a, a fungicide, I guess. I yeah. can't remember what it was that, uh, yeah, it cleaned out the river completely. Uh, and, but you know, it's only, it's in the lower parts of the river. Mm-hmm. And so the fish were able to recolonize very quickly from the reservoir and then from the streams. So I was surprised to find that the sculpins, which are the small bottom fish, which don't move around very readily, recolonize that reach very quickly, uh, once the poison had been washed away, essentially. So these fishes, these native fish, have tremendous powers of, of um, re- return if you, if you provide them with the right condition. In this case, the poison was a short-term event; it wiped out everything. <clears throat> but once it got diluted, and the, and you could and the native fishes were keep were coming back either from the reservoir or from these streams, they would find a habitat that was, you know, had all the right characteristics. It's like it's like we uh, discover a new earth almost, and you yeah. can just go in and colonize it essentially yeah, and, it did, yeah. and they did it very quickly so basically the upper sacramento river above shasta is pretty much like it was before the yeah. before that big big kill and then what do you think about saint helens which was you know they lost one third of the, the mountain the entire water the, yeah. the entire shed that the entire watershed got sloughed basically by 
by logs and just debris and it just looked mud. It was crazy. You, if you remember the the, Dash. the yeah. roll, the footage back in the day. And now, like I, I learned about it watching the artificial uh, um, show that was on that's on YouTube that Patagonia put out, mm-hmm. and they they spend about fifteen minutes talking about it. But they they're talking about um, still had populations prior to that being what whatever they were. Uh, but it had been a constant, you know, that they hadn't, hadn't gone peaks and valleys in terms of their, their population. But after that happened, obviously there's, there's zero fish in there. And then over time, over like 10, 15 years, you still had came back, they hit their original numbers and then they went way past what their original numbers were. Yeah. And that's almost expected because, uh, first off, you have to realize these trout evolved, still had evolved in this, uh, on the West coast, which even much as we, don't we we people hate to admit it is a very unstable landscape from the geologic perspective volcanoes are everywhere you know shasta yeah. is, a, is a major volcano um there are earthquakes there are all kinds of things that that cause streams to dry up or or disappear um and one of the things that all these salmonas are really good at they have two conflicting tendencies one is to home to the stream they were born in because that that means if you go back to that place, it's going to be a pretty good spot. And the other conflicting thing is to stray, just to explore a new explore a new world, so to speak. Uh, now, most of the time, those strays don't don't amount to anything. But during the times like Mount St. Helens, when the when the when the, all the resident fish are wiped out, it's these fish strays from nearby systems. They come in and they they hit they hit the bonanza. They say, wow, this is, this is great. <laughs> okay. No competitors in here. I can, all my young are going to survive. And they so you've do. got strays that happened before the, the explosion. They're out there. Yeah. That, that genetic pool is kind of saved. It's, it's in cash. And then the stuff, the guys that didn't get wiped out that maybe rode the tide into the lake or whatever. Yeah. They, they made it too. And yeah, then they just right. waited. Yeah, that's right. So you, these fish are oh. adapted for these very unstable landscapes. They, they know how to handle them. Uh, it's it's we it's, it's the people who don't know how to handle them properly, who have too too high an expectations uh, that the landscape will always be stable and well well we can all live peacefully on these. John's got a question. I've only done one podcast with him in person. And I can already tell when he needs to has a question. Yeah, Peter, uh, I know uh, you've been doing some work with Western Rivers on the Klamath. Can you kind of share with with us what's going on there? Um, all your work on Blue Creek. And uh, just kind of what what you see the future of the Klamath being like. Obviously, dams potentially going down here in the next yeah. twenty four months, two years, somewhere in there, right? Twenty twenty two, I think. I keeps getting pushed date. back. It was yeah. twenty nineteen, and they want to put a second hatchery on it. I Did learned that. about that on the artificial. Thing yeah, I, you know, I'll believe those dams will come down when it starts happening. But <laughs> certainly, the the the. the it seems to be the impetus is there to get them down. I mean, after all, it's the biggest dam removal project yet in North America. So if it if they can do it, it'd be a great thing. But you always have to be worried about that. If people get very optimistic about what taking down those dams will do. But you do have to remember that the historic Klamath River got very low in the summer. Uh, and so it got it really did get pretty warm. So if you and those four dams, while they didn't store a lot of water, stored enough that sometimes, like uh, in, in September, when you get this big runs coming up when the river is still warm, <clears throat> you had a small amount of water you could use to cool things down. Mm. Um, so you have to be very 
very cautiously optimistic with these dams. I think for the most part, taking them down would be a really good thing because there's one thing, there's cold water underneath the reservoirs. There's big springs that come in there that mm. will be great for coho. Um, but you always have to watch out for things that don't work out as perfectly as you as you think they will. Uh, that being said, I think the, the Klamath has great potential as a coho recovery stream once once those dams get removed. Mm. Um, I worry about the steelhead uh, bit because the steelhead will have access to the upper Klamath Basin. You have to realize in Oregon there's these wonderful big um, red band trout that, that are in um, Upper Klamath Lake that spawn, that live in the lake and spawn like steelhead in the Williamson Rivers, Williamson and Wood Rivers where there's big springs and so forth. So these fish are really well adapted for the warmish waters of uh, Upper Klamath Lake. And I wonder, what's, if you bring steelhead into that system, what, what kind of interactions will take place between those two fish? Hmm. Uh because the, the the red bands are actually you know they're big they're like steelhead in a sense they're big they're hmm. uh, very attractive but like they're endemic to that upper, upper region. So well, what, what do you think is going to happen? Hypothesis. Uh, I it's hard to say. You know, it just depends. It, it may be that the steelhead can't really make it up there because the Klamath Lake is just too warm, mm-hmm. uh, and that also goes for the also making the assumption that the Chinook, especially fall run Chinook both fall and spring run Chinook, which they're expecting to get up into the system, uh, can make it down through the lake. The, the tricky part, the, there's good spawning habitat in the rivers above the lakes and uh, in, in all the big rivers that flow into the upper Klamath Basin. But there's they get the, the lake itself gets really warm in the summer, and that's that's a problem. Now, the, interesting enough, the red band trout seem to have figured it out, but whether the non-native whether these reintroduced steelhead coming in for the ocean can figure it out well, maybe they're, be, they're be fat question have you ever have you ever caught one of those klamath fish they're fast yeah they're quick that's yeah. probably why they're so quick they, they, they needed to boogie guys. in there and yeah. boogie right back, back out right? well presumably they, they would they would go up in the winter and spawn uh and probably either they spawn just once to die or they would uh, wait for the next year to go by because uh, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine a good-sized steelhead surviving in, in Upper Klamath Lake without displacing the red band trout. If you look at some of the other tribs that are close to really fishing, there are some a lot of steelhead that big ones too yeah. that will go into those tributaries, yeah. hang out all summer like you're talking about, yeah. and then boogie back out when the rains come again. So. Maybe there was a lot more of a summer, but oh, like a summer run. That yeah, and this also brings to mind something. The recent research that shows you why you can you need to protect those. You're talking about summer steelhead, the ones that come and hold all summer long and spawn in the fall, mm-hmm. and then 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 the, the juveniles go back out the following spring. Um, that there's a genetic basis for that. That's just been discovered. And that means, and you know, in the past, it's was for for, for uh, spring run chinook and for summer steelhead and similar similar forms. Is the agencies have always assumed well they evolved in place. So if you had if you lost them temporarily, they would come back again because uh, they they were related fish in nearby watersheds. Well, it turns out that this um, the gene complex that enables this uh, these fish to to hang out over. Over the summer in cold water, far upstream, and they immigrant in, move into the system as immature fish. They are not ready to spawn until they've waited for a number of months in that, those upper watersheds. 
that is an evolved characteristic, and it, 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 it apparently it's only evolved once or twice. So that if those fish go extinct in that one particular system, they're highly unlikely to recover. So that's why you need these special protection now for these um, summer steelhead and spring chinook and so forth, the ones that have that particular particular life history. I think there should be a grant that gets some start banking them, start pulling some genetics and putting them, <laughs> putting them in a freezer. Or well, something. you know, there, there, there's, in, there's enormous interest in this. There's a lot of really, you know. Uh, Probably we know more about the genetics of salmon than almost any other group of fish. It's just that's where the money is. It's where the money is. It's also be, partly because of lawsuits and so forth, because of mm. declining populations. Also because people like Mike Miller, who's our genetist on campus here, an amazing guy, <laughs> loves to fish. Sounds like a good guest. To get. <laughs> it would be actually he'd be an excellent guest on this. Uh, you'd you'd thoroughly enjoy talking to him. Um, um, he, he knows an incredible amount about genetics of salmon in so general. I, I wanted to get somebody on about that, so let's let's do it. Yeah, Western, and then he, John mentioned Western Rivers and uh, Conservancy, right? Is that who you're referring yeah. to? Yeah. And then purchasing a lot of the land up in in Blue Creek to help help with that restoration of habitat up there, right? Is that? Yeah, now that, that, that's that's actually a remarkable project for all kinds of reasons. But you know, Blue Creek is. The, really the last cold water stream or cool water stream that flows into the Klamath, because uh, it's, it's just on the upper end of the fog belt. So it's big, you know, big Douglas fir, mostly second growth now, but big Douglas fir, a few redwoods, but big trees in there that have the fog drip that keep the, um, keep the keep Blue Creek flowing and keep it cold. And then Blue Creek itself flows into the Klamath River. Uh, and most years where it flows in, there's a huge pool right there. And that water coming out of the um, creek sinks to the bottom so that it stays cold at the bottom of this pool. So when these salmon, early early migrant salmon are coming up in September, they hit that pool and they can hang out there for a while to cool down, so to speak. <laughs> get get away from the stress of the warmer water or wait till the water, till the air temperature is cooled and the water itself cools. That is pretty remarkable, that, that whole system. And the, what Western Rivers Conservancy has done is essentially acquired the entire watershed. Um, and that now has <clears throat> turned it over to the Yurok tribe to manage uh, as a salmon sanctuary. And they've also acquired the two watersheds adjacent to Blue Creek that can be managed for, for timber production as, uh, by, by the tribe uh, as essentially jobs in the woods. So it's, it's designed to support the Yurok culture, same time be a refuge for salmon, uh, and, and other species. Cause like Blue Creek, it's a fun to snorkel in because you see in the same pool, you can see juvenile cutthroats, rainbows, uh, Chinook salmon and coho. That's, wow. That's, that's just crazy. Well, for a fish biologist, that's, you get very excited when you see all these fish together. <laughs> <laughs> when you started talking about the Douglas fir and the fog bank and the cooling river, you got me excited about like, just, yeah. just thinking about how trees can, yeah. there, just, it makes your knowledge strain, of trees, the, the, the Condensation you, have fishery, goes, you have a great fishery involved with it, you know, like that, just that piece right there is pretty remarkable. You do think about 96 and the Klamath Basin and how, how hot it gets right. up above that. And then you start saying that stuff. It's, it's really interesting to think about. Very interesting. And well, while some of those coastal rivers with the big trees, are they producing bigger fish because they have the biggest trees? Is that fair, is that fair to say? There's, there's lots of factors that go into that, but <clears throat> when you have big trees, you do tend to have colder water. 
And that's, that's one of, one of the nice things. And that's why, they, they, you know, the, the Western Rivers Conservancy has been very good about figuring these things out, trying to <clears throat> find places like Blue Creek that are really worth putting their time and energy mm-hmm. into. And Blue Creek is by far the biggest problem project they've ever, mm-hmm. ever undertaken. Uh, and it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, every time I go up there, I'm just impressed with it. It's just beautiful. And the fish are there. <laughs> right, right. I've got another question, kind of changing topics a little bit. One of the things we talked about on the boat the day we were out together uh, was your striped bass predation um, studies that were done on the Sacramento River. And many of our peers in the fishing community are fearful that once the Red Bluff Diversion Dam was taken down, that stripers would migrate, migrate up into Redding and then start to impact that trout fishery. Um, can you share with us kind of what some of the findings were on that, that striped bass predation on the Sacramento? Well, striped bass on the Sacramento River are there. And they go up pretty far, but you know, you know they really don't like cause water as cold as the trout like it. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the upper sack below, uh, the dams up there as, as a, as a, as you probably know, it's a great trout fishery. Uh, and it's, and, and it's interesting that steelhead have not really made much of an indent, uh, in the population there. The fish appear to be mostly resident fish. So the striped bass are no doubt taking juveniles as they move downstream. Uh, but, uh, the, the, I think the study you're referring to is the one that was done, but done by Dylan Stomp, who's, uh, now one of my graduate students. Uh, and he, he basically finds that, you know, if, if given a choice, uh, well, given the choice, I think they, uh, striped bass will eat as, especially the big striped bass will eat big fish. And that means if you're up in that region, you're feeding on suckers. Uh, so that's, and the times you find lots of juvenile striped bass and the uh, juvenile salmon in the guts of, of adult striped bass is in situations like you had before you, they opened the gates on the Red Bluff Diversion Dam, which you had a perfect situation for feeding small salmon to predatory fish. <laughs> they would come over the gates. Hit in the, one place. In one place, yeah. And it, and it had lights on the other thing. They had lights on the dam. <laughs> so, yeah. so the fish could feed, you know, striped bass and pike minnow will, will feed very, very comfortably at dim light. And, as, you know, they like to find, they like to feed at dawn and dusk. It's often the peak times of feeding. So you turn lights on. You've just created heaven for those fish. Basically. Yeah, it's like a sushi carousel. Yeah. They just the, come by the thing and you pull what you want. All those little hatchery fish coming down which don't know what they're doing. So, yeah. And in those cases, you catch a striped bass or a pike minnow and they'll be full of uh, a little salmon. But under more natural conditions, you won't find that. They all, you know, basically all predators are the same in the sense that they go to places where they can find the concentrations of the prey. And, and probably prey they can catch fairly easily. Yeah. The less energy you expect capturing the prey, the more energy you, you can divert into reproduction and other things. Is this why the, the Delta smelt, um, weren't really present in the striper as much as say other, other fish? Yeah. The Delta smelt. They're just harder to catch. Yeah. It, it's, it's right. The Delta smelt is a species <coughs> which doesn't school. You know, if you're a schooling fish, you're a perfect prey for a striped bass. Mm-hmm. What the what these delta smell does? It aggregates. Whoops. Um, shoot. Uh, um, at any rate, the um, <clears throat> the delta smell aggregates, 
and it but it doesn't form tight schools, so it's very hard for a bass to pick out individuals. Plus, it's semi-transparent, um, so that it um, is very hard to hard to see. And and especially that under under the historic conditions, the water was fairly turbid where the Delta Smelt would hang out. So it was. Riding the tides up and down the estuary is very hard to see because the water was fairly turbid and it was not really concentrated. And if you're a striped bass and you have big schools of anchovies or big schools of shad or, or similar species out there, that's what you're going to go for. It makes sense. Well, what, much easier to catch the smelt. What about crawfish? Wasn't crawfish a uh, something found in the the predation study or, or studies of just what the stripers were eating? Were they- oh, oh, yeah. That actually surprised me. Crawfish. Uh, are really abundant in the Sacramento River. They're also abundant in the Delta. Uh, and, you know, you expect largemouth bass to eat crawdads. That's, that's just what they do. Uh, but you, somehow I didn't expect that in the stripers. But sure enough, uh, given access to them, they'll, they'll eat them. The guys that harvest a lot of those big striper or just regular striper, they do find, you know, a lot of suckers. Yeah. And it's interesting. I'm seeing them now more than ever. I'm paying, been paying attention, but the suckers are being, you can see, you know, there's a fish around because it's being, their suckers are schooled up yeah. right in the shallows, like in literally yeah. inches of water. Right. And I mentioned this to a, a guy that does a lot of eco tours out there. And he's like, that's interesting because the, the osprey loves suckers, yeah. you know, and they and I'm sure the suckers know that if I get too skinny, like I'm going to get sn- snatched up by yeah. an osprey. So they're, they're playing that battle. Like if, if I'm going to get eaten by an osprey or that big striper, that's got oh, his yeah. mouth open, like coming, coming in the shallows. You know, um, yeah, people forget that suckers are often denigrated as being, you know, these evil fish somehow, but yeah. they're, they're a major prey for eagles, bald, um, osprey, big striped bass, anything that they can get, get their mouths around it. Cause they're, they're a relatively slow fish, but they're very muscular. And that's, a, lot of, a lot of food and they, and they do tend to forage in shallow water. So I, I don't think the yeah. trout and redding are going to be, you know, of an issue. No. Up there, it's such a great cold water fishery. You mentioned why the steelhead haven't um, done well up there, and it, it kind of goes back to we've had an episode about when a trout is a trout and a trout becomes a steelhead, yeah, yeah. And, and that warm water condition kind of promotes a trout to leave right and get out of that warm water and go seek shelter elsewhere, be, go to the ocean and come back potentially, yeah. right? That's just one variable instead of food, maybe a lack of food being another. Um, so going back to that Klamath piece, I, I think the steelhead could, if the conditions are right, they could make that area, right? A, a potential habitat for them, even in warm water conditions. Well, right? well, certainly where the dams are, they could, uh, you know, especially, you know, the way the Klamath works now in the issue go from the lowermost dam, uh, Iron Gate Dam, mm-hmm. you go, and you go down to the little, roughly Blue Creek where the cold water starts, mm-hmm. where you find little coho salmon and little Chinook salmon is in where all little small tributaries come in. There are a lot of small tributaries that are pretty yeah. cold, and they create sort of a, a very small cold water pool below each of those tributaries, and, they, and each one then supports a few fish. Hmm. And so... If when you take down the dams, you're probably going to have more habitat like that. Right. Uh, but it'll be on the edges. The main stem river may actually be pretty, pretty too warm, but there's, as long as there's good water flowing in from those trips, uh, and from some of the other spring sources, there will be habitat for these fish. Interesting. I've, I've got a, um, striper stomach contents question for you. So the, we, one of our guests, um, he he spearfishes striper and he gets big ones like 40 sure. 40 plus oh, pounders yeah. I've heard about and this. so he'll go through the the contents sometimes and he finds all kinds of interesting things but the stuff that he said that that i thought was crazy was 
he'll, they'll find rocks inside the stomach he's saying and some golf ball to sometimes i think he said a fist size right it was huge yeah, big, big rock what's going on have, have you seen that before I have, I have not seen that but i can only imagine they, they're picking those up out going well going after crayfish or, or yeah something. that's what we were that's yeah. what we were thinking you know and and do they do they use them like for digestion also like a gizzard or what's going on <laughs> not that i'm aware of but you know yeah. when you look at a sucker gut it has a lot of detritus and this is striper, not sucker. Oh, oh, su- yeah, oh, striper. The, the striper, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, I, usually striper guts are pretty clean. You know, what they have in yeah. them is the fish, and that's it. Uh, so, yeah, they must So maybe be. it was a fish tournament striper or something. So John, John's <laughs> yeah, stuffing yeah, rocks down their throat again. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll, I'll buy that. That's a good hypothesis. <laughs> Peter, what, uh, what projects – I know you've, we've limited on some time. What yeah, projects are you really excited about right now or things that you're excited about that um, maybe you've been working on in the past and things are just coming to fruition? What, are you, is there something you want to talk about I specifically guess. that we haven't well, brought about? or? There's a, there's it doesn't a, have to be fish-related. There's a bunch of things that are, that are going on, but <clears throat> one of them is that we're – um, we're looking at the, uh, the the data from all the various surveys, that, fish surveys that go on in the delta and in, in the, the estuary. What you have to realize is that uh, this is one of the best studied estuaries in the world, the San Francisco estuary, including the delta. Uh, there are 14 surveys that have been going on now for more than, more than 20 years. So that's a huge amount of data. Only by and large, each agency collects this data for their old programs, for the answer to their old questions, and they don't talk to each other very much. So one of the things we're doing is finding ways you can make these data sets comp- either join hands or at least show show what the similar trends are because you ha- that means you have to convert the data into compatible formats and so forth. But even things like the abbreviations of fish are not standardized. So if you want to try to get... Uh, Use make get maximum use out of all this data that's collected. You've got to find a, a better better way of making the, these data sets work together. Because I'm convinced that one of the problems we've had in in monitoring the estuary uh, in the past is this heavy reliance on endangered species or on one or two species, just as was historically with just striped bass. Um, and what we really need to for improved monitoring of the health of the system is to get have indices that are made up of the uh, trends of multiple species of fish, striped bass plus delta smelt plus long fin smelt plus split tail, for example. Uh, but the data on these different species tends to be collected by different surveys. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is figure out how can we make these surveys compatible and, 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 and create essentially one big database out of all these different databases that are collected by very different people using very different gears. Um, and we have a paper that should be coming out soon on that. And that's very, to me, is very exciting because it, it opens up worlds of possibilities of providing better analysis. Is that paper going to be public? Oh, yeah. It'll, yeah. it'll, be, it'll be published in a, in, a, in a journal. Do you think there's this a – Yeah. If all goes well, it'll be out in, in another, within six months. Okay. Do you do you think there's a place for citizen science, like uh, anglers providing some of that m- and more of that data to to, your, to the scientists that are on the ground? Yeah, the citizen science is you know it's a growing thing, uh, and especially with, with, with fishermen, it just seems like such a natural L- thing. 
let's wrap a definition around that before we keep sure. going. But like a lot of people won't know what we're talking about. We brought it up a few times, but we're getting new listeners sure. monthly. So can can you kind of explain what citizen science is? Well, citizen science is there's various ways to describe it, but I I, I see it as where. Um, a, a group of citizens get together to work with some trained biologists, usually, um, who train them to to collect data for a specific purpose. For example, you, you said you need more um, information on the diets of striped bass. You could or, we could organize a study saying, okay, we want um, we want X number of anglers who to keep track of all the striped bass they catch, measure these fish so we get a length out of them, maybe take a, a fin clip if we're going to do genetics, then pump the stomachs so the bass can be returned to the water alive, and then identify the prey in the stomachs, recording these on a standardized form, and then have a computer, have a page on a computer where you could enter the data. Um, obviously, you know, people get, scientists often get suspicious of this kind of data because they want to say, how can these people be reliable? How right. can these fishermen be right. reliable? But if they're well-trained, the data, and you have the right kind of data. You but can, also if the sample size is big enough too, yeah. right? You can throw the outliers out and assume the belt stuff in the middle of the bell curve is good. That's right. That's yeah. right. So it's a matter of finding the right, the right program, the right questions to ask, and getting the right group of people to do it. And there's a lot of that going on, especially in the terrestrial end of things, less so in the aquatic. But I think that's talking just, bugs, 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 and bugs things, yeah. yeah. I think, uh, and one of the problems right now, from my perspective, is going to be increasingly difficult to do citizen science in aquatic systems because the uh, um, difficulties of getting collection permits from the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, it used to be nobody cared about insects, but even now, if you want to go out and sample aquatic insects, um, you, uh, 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 officially you need a, a fishing license at least to do that. Um, hmm. So, anyway, it's um, there's always obstacles, but well, I want to. It's it's uh, four p.m. We have you for like fifteen more minutes. Is that right? Uh, when do you need to be? Uh, he's like five. <laughs> yeah, about five. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have, a, I have a really dumb question. Um, the, all the there's a lot of obviously, especially in the valley, there, a lot of restoration stuff going on. Some of it's controversial, like you know the trucking, trucking mm. the smelt down. It sounded like you're you're wondering the same thing I am. Why do we do it? But um, why don't they just make a big fish ladder over the Shasta Dam with a with a gradient with the, with the great <laughs> no like a big public public yeah. works fish ladder that's big yeah with the right gradient. It would cost a shit ton of money, yeah. but over time, it would be much cheaper than doing all this stuff that we're doing. Is it is is it viable? Is it a pipe dream? Why hasn't that been done? Well, I think cost is one thing. It's also just because the sheer size of that. Yes, it's a really high dam. You'd have to have a very long, yeah. uh, long yeah. ladder, and it has to be designed not only for trout and salmon, but for sturgeon, for example. If you really mm. want really wanted to make it work. Um, the, you know, the people in the Columbia River have lots of experience in trying to build fish ladders. And, and what you generally find is that when you get to the really big fish ladders, you have a harder and harder time making them work. You have to have, you have to have the right flows going over them to attract. You have to attract the fish to the ladder, for example, uh, and get it to enter the ladder and then swim upstream with it. Then you have the problem of once it gets in the reservoir, where does it go? How does it know? Where the best spawning streams are. Right. So and there's a lot of things you'd have to do to make that work. Oh, I just thought you'd build a big ladder and it was a problem solved. Well, uh, 
I don't think so. It's a little more complex than that. <laughs> a little more complex Damn. than that. What do you think about them putting a bounty on those hard-headed pike minnows? Well, that obviously is a complete waste of money for one thing. Uh, bounties, various systems very rarely work very well. You know, even in the Columbia River where they're, you know, people are now making a living from bounties, uh, on pike minnow. There's the evidence that this is really making any difference to salmon populations is not very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it gets there's some correlations there, but it's, it's, and they have all these nice models that show you it's making a difference, but yeah, I'm, I'm, Caught me as a skeptic. Gotcha. <laughs> We're going to, John gets the last question. Go. Gosh, I, I, I blew my uh, wad already. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, uh, I mean, I, I feel like we need like three or four more episodes here. Uh, I mean, there's yeah. so much data to gleam off yeah. of, uh, gleam off of Peter here. Well, maybe we'll um, let him chew on it for a couple of weeks or months and we'll try to get yeah. schedule a time to get back together. And would you and, be and open this? to doing a, a, a few more? Yeah, maybe we could do it better. Um, I thought it was great. I learned a, a lot. Find some really narrow topics to go to get down. Yeah, we this can, was the broad brush Mike, You know Mike Miller in yeah. and, and talk with him a little bit about yeah, the genetics cool. piece. That would be super cool. Yeah. 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 Mike Miller and Andrea Scherer, who's also a geneticist. There are two different geneticists that you could talk to here. That's one mm-hmm. piece that we haven't really yeah. dove in pretty deep but because it, yeah. it is fresh and new, yeah. and but it, I think it would be really interesting. I want to talk CRISPR with them. Mike, he, he, Mike Miller yeah. would definitely do that. Cool, very cool. Um, can can we do the the Caltrow read and then and then we'll uh, we'll let we'll let Peter go. I'll undo his shackle and <laughs> <laughs> he gets to go to the dentist, so he's really stoked. Yeah. Bring it up here real quick. Donate to Caltrout today to ensure resilient wild fish thrive in healthy waters for a better California by texting the word barbless. B A R B L E S S to two six nine eight nine. Once again, that's text barbless to two six nine eight nine. Thank you so much. Support Cal Trout. What other organizations do you really like, Peter? Throw them out real quick. Well, Western Rivers, of course. The Western uh-huh. Rivers Conservancy mm-hmm. is uh, what I work for. Uh, and Cal Trout. Those are the two organizations I probably spend the most time working with mm-hmm. on California issues. And have really seen them make an impact on on our fisheries for, oh, yeah. for the better, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, Caltrout now is is just doing amazing things. So yeah, I've I've got one last question, and it's always you know I, I'm kind of like the the more edgy guy that you know he cusses I cuss on the show, and I'll ask the you know kind of you know lowbrow jokes. When you guys got the the uh, the the audio by the um, what am I trying to say the conservancy going? Were you involved in in building out or planning? that layout of the camp when you walk, when you walk in and check in and grab your tag and all that stuff? Um, or was that after you? No, that was constructed while we were working there. I wasn't responsible for that. Okay. It was, uh, but it was sort of an organic thing. Yeah. Uh, do you know, do, can you just talk about the genesis of why they decided to do a side-by-side toilet for the outhouse? <laughs> <laughs> I really want to understand I, that because you could literally go hold your buddy's hand yeah. and, and, you know, push one out together. So it just kills me every time I go in there. You know, I, 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 I must admit I've observed that, but I have, yeah. I've not thought of chosen to think about it. <laughs> well, maybe you should go fishing with me. We'll go try it out. Okay. <laughs> that was good. Thank you so much, Peter, for your time. We really, we really appreciate it. And John for coming out and meeting with us and yeah, guest hosting. Yeah, dude. Really yeah, appreciate good it. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been great. Awesome. Tight lines, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh,
special thanks to our sponsors. Without them, this show would not be possible. Like this episode? Leave a review. Grab some gear or become a Patreon supporter. Links are in this episode's description. This show is part of the Barbless Podcast Network. For sponsorship inquiries or general questions, please email fishon at barbless.co. No better, fish better. This has been an AMP Audio Production.